0: Lesson 1 of um, our class on the prophets of the Old Testament, both the writing and non-writing prophets. Uh, You have two sheets in front of you. One is just talking about prophetic and apocalyptic literature and scripture, and the other one is a timeline of the Old Testament prophets, half of which you got last class if you were in it, because it dealt with the books we were studying the books but we're going a little broader on this class we're not just talking about the books we're talking about prophets who didn't even write books who were just recorded in scripture and when i started writing down the prophets in scripture who did not write books i was really i thought i'd have three you know nathan uh gad samuel and it just blew up and so uh we got a lot more than i thought we would um just off the top of my head, when I was thinking about it, which is great because we got a lot more weeks than last time, so we got to fill it up somehow. Does everybody in here have the two sheets? If not, I've got them here. But well, let's get started. I said we were going to review prophetic and apocalyptic literature from Scripture. This was from Lesson Five in our last uh, class on the genres of Scripture. Uh, as I said, this often in seminary called hermeneutics but we didn't want to use big words in church and confuse people um, or have anyone ask where is hymeneutics out of uh, equal access. So we just decided to call it uh, Genres of Scripture uh, last time. And I think it turned into my favorite lesson was the genre of apocalyptic and prophetic scripture. Y'all come on in. Y'all can't catch all my cheesy intro jokes, but oh, just, just be just be well aware they were funny. At least three or four people laughed. So prophetic and apocalyptic, uh, we're talking mainly about the book the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, or as I often refer to him, Malachi, the Italian prophet. Um, I ripped that off of somebody. Yeah, I ripped that off of somebody. So there's also uh, some books in the um, New Testament have some apocalyptic uh, elements such as Revelation, Jude, 2 Peter, And then the second half of Daniel in the Old Testament, also some passages in Judges have apocalyptic uh, characteristics. Apocalyptic, a lot of times we misuse that word in modern English. We say that that movie was apocalyptic because it deals with the end of the world. A nuke went off somewhere and society fell apart. People were roaming the wastelands and scavenging car parts. It was apocalyptic. (laughs) That's not what apocalypse means in Greek. Uh, apocalypse in Greek comes from two words, apo, meaning from or, or away from, and then uh, kalupsis or kalupto, which means to uncover something. So you, un- you uncover something, you reveal it, thus the word revelation. Um, I've given this image before when we have Lord's Supper, you see it on the table back before the days of COVID under a sheet. And somebody new would say, well, what is under the sheet? And when you uncover it, you apocalypse what is under the sheet. You reveal it. That's what apocalyptic used to mean. And so when we say apocalyptic scripture, we're talking about um, when the cover over reality is removed and you see the real spiritual side of what's happening and so, for example, in the book of Judges, whenever Barak and Deborah are fighting against uh, the enemies of, of God's people, and when Sisera's been defeated and he's got a, you know, a nail through his head and they're, they're singing about this victory, you'll hear this imagery about how the mountains shaked and the stars did this. And you go back and read the battle passage, you're like, I don't see any mountains or stars. Well, they are speaking about the spiritual warfare, the spiritual reality behind the event. God saved his people, and it just looked like a battle with dust and blood. But in the heavenly spiritual realms, other stuff was happening. Same thing with the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation deals with a spiritual view of these massive events that are happening on earth, as John has this vision, and when they happen they may not look exactly like they do to him because they're a spiritual apocalypse of what's going on. And so the prophetic and apocalyptic literature in Scripture often uses figurative, stark language to convey what's happening behind the scenes to God's people. It can be frightening. Uh, I remember when I was a teenager and we, me and my friends would read the book of Revelation and we'd talk about it, and then we couldn't fall asleep. Stuff would crawl on the you know, ceiling when you're trying to go to sleep. Or the next day, something in the newspaper would look like, this is what we're talking about, a revelation. And we would just go, you know, trying to find a fulfillment of prophecy in every little newscast. And so apocalyptic and prophetic literature in the Bible is, is confusing at times. Um, there's a reason that uh, when Jesus was on Earth, He had to explain a lot of the prophetic scriptures about Himself to the apostles, because at face value, we aren't very good at seeing things from God's seeing things from God's viewpoint. So, the way that it is both preserved and hidden is through figurative, poetic language. And if you remember the class before this and the genre study was on poetic language and scripture, I kind of built it up to that point just to tell you, when you read something out of the book of Isaiah, you may not need to take it at its most literal, most literal uh, rendition to see what God is doing. And oftentimes scriptures uh, that talk about how prophecy was fulfilled, you go, oh, they should have seen that coming, but they didn't because it was... It was not yet apocalypsed or revealed to them. So that is a, a brief um, reminder for some and introduction to others of the prophetic and apocalyptic books in Scripture. Figurative. And if there are any poets in here, maybe you know this word imagism. Uh, imagistic poetry is oftentimes, it doesn't rhyme, but it's a word image. I used the uh, poem, The Death of the Ball Turret Gunner. Has anyone in here read that poem before? It was written after the Korean War and uh, has some very stark images about black flack five miles up and, and how his uh, fur around his, bump, his jacket would freeze up in there. And then it says at the end of it, they washed my remains out with a hose. I mean, it's just... And you read that and you go, but it's imagism, it's powerful. And that's the type of poetry you will see in Scripture. You will see this imagery where God will send a prophet to tell a man that his kids will be slaves and his wife will be a prostitute because an army is going to come in and wipe out Israel. And he has prostituted God's people to foreign gods and to idols, so the same thing will be done to him. And you read that and you go... Man, that's rough. Well, that's how the prophets spoke. That's what God told them to speak. And so some of it is very, very... It was a, we're getting between PG-13 and Radar with some of this stuff. But that's the way the prophets spoke. It wasn't always, they're going to come from the north, they're going to use siege engines, they're going to break you. No, it was like God told uh, the northern kingdom through Amos, they're going to carry you out through breaches in the wall with fish hooks. And it was the the way the Assyrians would hook their prisoners together with fish hooks in their mouth. And uh, in a big human chain, if one person fell, everyone on either side of him would get drugged down with it. It was very torturous. And so you have that type of imagery in the prophets. It's grotesque at times. But God's people were committing grotesque sins. And so he communicated in this very evocative language to get them, hopefully, to listen to the warnings. So... Back to your sheet here. Let's talk about the role of the prophets. Once again, for some of you, a retelling, and for some of you, an introduction. The prophets weren't like fortune tellers. They weren't like people you went to when you wanted the lotto numbers. Um, kind of as we think a, a card hmm. reader or someone like that, that wasn't what a prophet uh, was in the Old Testament. The prophets were more uh, almost like lawyers in a sense. They were, I have it here broken down into two categories. Number one is a covenant mediator. A covenant, you know, is an ancient agreement that uh, almost like a business contract where both the parties had specific duties. And if one party committed a breach of contract, they would, you know, you would hire a lawyer to basically uh, make sure this person either fixes the contract, or sue them for breach of contract. Well, the prophet was like that lawyer. God would send the prophet, and their job was to come in and, and tell Israel or Judah where they had broken the covenant, and to plead with them to get back in compliance through repentance or some action. The second role of the prophet was to retell the future for God's people. Most of the stuff they said was not brand new. It was a rehash of what had already happened. And so they were kind of spelling out, you know that Moses told y'all, if y'all disobey, you're going to go into exile. Your enemies are going to defeat you, and you're going to be carted off somewhere else out of your land. And so they would retell the negative future for God's people if they disobey, but they'd also retell the messianic promises you know what's going to happen in the future. The the, the the knowledge of the Lord is going to fill the entire earth. Uh, God is going to live with his people. They're going to have new hearts. And you want to be a part of this. And so that retelling both the negative and positive future for God's people was was part of the role of the prophets. Any questions or comments? Now there is some... Future telling that happens where God gives some prophets knowledge, but that wasn't their main job. I just don't want y'all to think that the prophets are going around going, "You're going to have dinner tonight, and it's going to be warm," and it came true. You know, like it it wasn't like that, Um, and it wasn't like in some churches we see people going around going, "I have a word for you." They didn't just go around having words for everybody. Um, So, yes.
1: Are you saying with the imagery and the
0: figurative language, does that feed into, like, the plagues and Exodus? Um, no, the, the actual plagues themselves um, happened, I believe, as recorded there. Now, I'll give you a note on those plagues in just a minute. But what I'm saying is that when a prophet comes up and says, um, locusts, are coming there are times that that might have been a figurative horde of locusts, just armies of invaders swarming like locusts, or it might have been literal locust, but they use that imagery of locusts devouring everything as a symbol of what was going to happen and then God just made it happen um, so oftentimes when the prophets foretell the future they're using an image and you and, and you look at that image and you say you know. What does it mean the government will be on his shoulders? Like the foretelling of the Messiah. What does it mean, wonderful counselor? Uh, you know, these, these words carry a lot of weight and they're just painting an image, like, like, a, like a snapshot of what's going to happen. It's not really spelling out a chronological um, map. Now, about the plagues um, and... Off the top of my head, I can't remember the exact gods it corresponds to. Each of the major plagues against the Egyptian pharaoh, for example, like the river uh, filled with blood, I believe I've read this, and uh, I'll check up on it for next week, but they corresponded to Egyptian deities where God was one by one showing the Egyptians, I'm bigger than your gods, you know, like, uh, like I know the frogs had something to do with an Egyptian god. And so uh, those were symbols, those were, they actually happened. They were real events, but they're also symbols of God saying, you know, who else in your pantheon can you throw at me? I'll I'll take care of that too. So let's get back to this uh, Thank you. apocalyptic literature and good question. Anytime you got a question, you know, cut my teeth teaching youth for all those years, I'm good with distraction. You know, I can generate more distractions than you can. Introduce into my mind. So please ask away. <laughs> Apocalyptic literature deals more with uncovering the physical blanket over reality and showing the spiritual nature of events. An example: Daniel and the kingdoms. Remember, he saw a statue with a gold head, um, you know, different chest, thighs, and then the mixed clay and iron, which is is it right there, right behind, right behind, right behind me. Dr. Yeah, that that he saw uh, was a way of conveying the spiritual nature of all the kingdoms that came thereafter. And so apocalyptic literature works with these symbols to show us what's going to happen, not by spelling it out, but by giving powerful images that God then reinforces through other prophets. Now, this is all new material, so if you're in the old class, you're getting new stuff now, and if you're new here, we'll all learn it together. But I want to talk about what is a prophet. We didn't talk about that a lot last time. We talked about what they did. But... What a prophet is. Um, the word we pull this from is Greek, prophetas. And it's uh, someone who tells forth or, or, or like utters forth, you know, they, or they see forth. Um, and it, it encapsulates four Hebrew uh, phrases or words. Um, so the Septuagint, which we call the LXX for shorthand because um, there were that many Roman numeral people, I think a 70, right? Or, uh, yeah, 70 people that all worked on it, and supposedly their translations all matched just so they knew it was God's blessing on the Septuagint uh, translation Greek. So a lot of these Greek words uh, where there's one word came from several Hebrew, Hebrew words. Um, so there's Navi. There's hoza, which is funny because I got called a hoza in China, um, and it does not mean profit in China. It means monkey. <laughs> uh, Roy, I'm glad you... I'm, you're laughing too long, all right? I, 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 you're, not, you're not supposed to uh, uh, laugh that long at a joke about me, all right? Um, and then, man of God, <clears throat> I believe it was uh, Isha Elohim. I can't remember if it was Isha Adam. Uh, but anyhow, Navi, Hozo roe So this means prophet. This means uh, a seer. This means one who sees visions. And then this is a man of God, a man belonging to God or working for God. And so all four of these words are used interchangeably. Um, like i give you an example is that there's a passage in 1 Samuel where Saul goes looking for Samuel the prophet because he's got some lost donkeys. His father Kish, his donkeys are gone. You remember that story? And he says he went up to try to see the prophet. And then it has a little note that says, Formerly in days if someone was going to the prophet, they'd say, Let's go to the seer, which is Hosea, I believe. And so it's showing you those words are interchangeable over time, they all kind of became the same thing. So, a prophet, um, or Na'vi, Hozo Roa, a man of God, it, it's all used interchangeably. Um, just because somebody's called something in one place, like a Roa, doesn't mean he has a different role than a Na'vi in a different book. Those, are, those words are under what we call the same sem- semantic domain. Like if you say, an electrician, you go to Australia, you know what they call the electrician? A sparky, which I think is cool. But it's the same thing. A sparky and an electrician It's someone who's going to get shocked and pay you. or And you're going to pay them. Um, so these terms are interchangeable. And then they're also, when we talk about the prophets, in some books you hear about the sons of prophets. And Amos even says at one spot, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but the Lord sent me to preach. So the son of the Prophets, this is a son of the prophets. This is interesting because we don't hear a lot about this in Scripture, but when you read certain books, it's there. There are groups of prophets kind of like walking around and hanging out in the wilderness or living in a town. So you remember after uh, Saul gets anointed as king, uh, Samuel tells him a new spirit will come upon him and his heart will be changed to a different man. And he goes off and he sees some prophets on top of a hill and he prophesies with them. So in ancient Israel, there were groups of prophets that would live like in a community and practice um, communion, deep communion with God and guiding people into following him. And we don't have a lot written about them, but you see like, for example, Elisha and Elijah live with a group of prophets. Uh, when When Elijah is running... God tells him I've hidden uh 5 I believe it's 500 prophets who have never bowed a knee to Baal. So there are other prophets in Israel even though there are super famous ones who we know their names, there are countless other ones we never know their name and they're living in these communities trying to worship God and get others to worship him properly. And um it's kind of interesting cuz you will miss them if you just aren't looking for it. But uh Like I said, they're these groups living scattered around Israel who are prophets. Now, in these uh, days before the temple, if somebody wanted to inquire of the Lord and ask Him for a blessing or ask Him a question or or for guidance, who would they go to? The prophet. So y'all remember, for example, when Saul did... uh, have some lost donkeys for his father Kish. He went and he had a little bit of silver in his bag and he told the guy with him, let's go inquire of the man of God up on the hill, which was Samuel. And so, it wasn't just moral, it was like, I don't know where my donkeys are and supposedly the prophet, being in close communion with God, could just ask God for guidance for you. That was part of living in Israel at this time. Um, You have another story of, which same book, but uh, the story of Hannah wanting a child and not being able to have a child. And the priest, who is Eli, who also seemed to have a prophetic role because he trained Samuel, was able to give her comfort from the Lord that she would have a child. And so there's this comforting and kind of answering role of the prophets before the temple, Um, in fact, they were even used as military advisors. And if you remember the story of Jehoshaphat and Ahab, we're going to get to this one later because it's so funny to read, where they're like, let's go get get in a battle with this guy, and I think we're going to win. And they're like, let's ask some prophets. And all these prophets are like raving mad with iron horns on their head, falsely prophesying victory. And Jehoshaphat is like, isn't there like a prophet of Yahweh here? And the king is like, yeah, but he always prophecies bad stuff about me. I don't want him. (laughs) They bring him in, and he just tells them, you're going to lose. So you would also ask a prophet at times for uh, military input. Um, Sometimes if a person was afflicted by a disease, like Naaman the Syrian, he was a famous general for the king, he had leprosy. And he went to Elisha in Israel and asks him, how can I get cured of this disease? And so you would ask for a cure for a disease at times from a prophet. Now this is odd to me because I started thinking about this when I was preparing the lesson. And I'll ask you all to to try to find your best answer for me. If you remember the first five books of the Bible with Moses and the law, if you had a disease, what were you supposed to do with it? Remember, there were these diseases that would keep you out of the temple, or when a temple, you keep you out of the community around the tabernacle. They would keep keep you kicked out of society, kind of. What were you supposed to do if you had those diseases? Anybody remember?
1: Leprosy is what we're talking about, right?
0: That was one of them, but there were I think there were some others.
1: But with leprosy you were supposed to isolate yourself yeah. away from all mankind.
0: Right, but there was another prescription in there for it. Remember, there is there was another thing. If you had uh like if you had leprosy and God cured you, who were you supposed to go seek out?
1: You go to the priest and and offer a sacrifice right.
0: for your healing. All right. That brings up the priests, and that's what I wanted to to kind of get out of y'all. Where do the priests fit into this?
1: prophet was the person that God chose. The priests were a group that was set aside out of the Israeli family.
0: Right. Uh, They were dedicated to be priests. Who were they from? Levi. 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 Alright, we're getting somewhere now. So the prophets were not priests. They were not genetically descended all one from another they weren't though there were some from the tribe of levi moses they weren't necessarily from that tribe and their function was a lot different than the priesthood both were necessary but it's just interesting that as i was thinking about this the prophets really did a lot of different work than the priests um, for example and this is uh, the last three bullet points on your paper they were distinct from the priesthood because they played no sacrificial role once the temple was established once the temple was established you don't see prophets involved directly in sacrifice now you do with Eli and Samuel That's one of the outliers, but that's before David was able to build the temple. The ark wasn't necessarily always in the same place. Um, If you read back then, it got moved around a bit. And so I guess that under Eli, Samuel played some type of priestly role because of his training. Also... um, The priest dealt with God's revealed word in a sacrificial sense. Moses told the priests what to do. And they memorized it, and that's what you did. You came up there with a problem like you're cured of leprosy. You you got a prescription, do this, do this, do this. You came up there after purifying yourself from some other ritual uncleanliness. You came up there asking forgiveness for a sin. You had a certain prescription that you did. And so the priests answer the question, what does it take to stand in right relationship with God? How can you stand before God as his people and fulfill, I think I I wrote it down in my head, fulfill the covenant? So the priests deal with the covenant and how do you stay in that covenant. That's the priest's job. Oftentimes, if you read commentaries or Bible study material, they'll talk about the, the cult. They, they're not talking about like Jim Jones or anything or drinking Kool-Aid. They call the cult the temple and tabernacle and the sacrifice of animals the actual like ritual sacrifice that the Jewish people participated in. That was called the cult. If you read um, a lot of old commentaries, they talk about the temple cult, the cult system. Like I said, it's not something from the 80s, it's something from way back, you know. That was the actual sacrifice. The prophets weren't involved in that. The prophets were not, for the most part, like I said, except Samuel, um, they were not involved in the cult. They were not Levites. Most of them. What the prophets, so the priests are saying, stay in the cult, I mean stay in the covenant, fulfill that through the cult, through the temple, through the sacrifice. The prophets deal with broken covenants. When Israel broke the covenant, either by not sacrificing or at times sacrificing with a wrong heart, because sometimes the prophets say. God hates your sacrifices. They're done with the wrong heart. Other times they forget and they sacrifice to the wrong gods or, or you know, whoever, whoever that pretty girl over there's God is, you know, like because they were doing uh, intermarriage with with Canaanites, and so the prophets come and say, "Listen, you've broken the covenant. You need to get back to it and offer right sacrifices or offer sacrifices of the right motive, but you've." You've broken the covenant, and so that's uh, that's what the prophets are dealing with—a broken covenant. So both of them fulfilled very important parts in the life of God's people. Um, one to warn, and the other one's to enact what it took to stand in right relationship with God. And so, you've got these two schools here: the priests and the prophets in the Old Testament, uh, sometimes uh, not actively or openly, but on the d- on different sides of the same issue because at times the priests would be corrupt and at times the prophets would be corrupt. You can read where there are times where God claims the prophets have, uh, have misled his people by being led away into the worship of other gods too. It wasn't that the prophets are always right and the priests are always wrong. You had... Men within each group that were right and men who were wrong. Or in the way of prophets, as we'll find out, sometimes women um, who were prophetesses. So the priests deal with God's revealed word in sacrifice and the prophets deal with God's revealed word in daily living. Um, Even sometimes critiquing the temple system and the sacrifices if God's people did them with the wrong heart. And so uh, the prophets did not set down new laws. They did not think up new regulations. They were interested in God's people following the old regulations, except for Moses. Now, Moses, um, as we're going to look at uh, next week, Moses was the archetypal prophet, priest, almost king mix, um, which we will see that in Jesus. We call him our prophet, priest, and king. But Moses was the archetype. And he did write the laws revealed to him from God. But Moses, as we know from the book of Hebrews, is very, very, very important, though not as important as Jesus. Um, he's uh, He's the prototype, and Jesus is the full type. Remember, we talked about typology last semester. So let's wind this down now. So taking a step back from this, um, if I had to ask you, when we deal with a prophet, are we dealing with somebody who makes new scripture? Who makes new revelation? Who makes new laws? No, right? We're dealing with somebody who looks at the existing laws that God gave and says, you have forgotten this. Second, are they telling the, a new future? Are they just making stuff up that's going to happen? You no, know? nope, they're retelling what God has shown. Um, they are reinforcing God's previous revelations. Do we have any questions, any comments, or any clarification that we need on the role of a prophet? Or any stories you can think of in Scripture? This is, a, this is the tough part. I've just told you the general pattern, and I've said that what a prophet does exists somewhere in here. And so we're going to find stories that are mainly in here, but we're going to find some, a couple of stories outside the box because Scripture is just filled with wonderful twists and turns. Um, like I said, there's, there's even a prophetess in Scripture. Um, there are some of the New Testament um, but there's never a female priest because the priesthood is closed to males. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna find, But any questions or anything you can think of, any stories that you say this story doesn't quite fit in this framework to me, let's talk about that. It's so open for questions. Go ahead. Yes,
2: I got confused when you when you, we've got this list of prophets. The Bible's got these prophet books. And then you started talking about there were a lot of prophets and people would go to them and it sounded like you were saying they would go to them with some of their troubles and the prophet would say, well, here's what it is. What's the difference in in an advisor that's an accountant or a medical or a a psychologist or anybody that just has learned how to advise you in your time of trouble?
0: So the difference between... A wise counselor and a prophet would generally be, I think, in in two ways. Number one is David had counselors. If you remember when he went into a civil war against his son Absalom, there were two counselors in uh, in his circle. One was named Ahithophel, and one was named something else that's escaping me right now, but Ahithophel is the one who gave such good counsel that the Bible says inquiring of Ahithophel was like inquiring of a man of God. Like that's how wise he was. It was almost like you were going to a prophet or to God himself. He just knew the right way to do stuff. You remember that story, Jeff? And so, because what happens is David sends back his second best counselor to confuse the counsel of Ahithophel because Absalom goes, what should we do? And Ahithophel says, go right now, take just a few men and just go pursue your father right now and find him and just slaughter him and leave everyone else alive and the, the nation will turn to you. And the other guy goes, usually he's right, but you got to remember this and this and this. And, and he gives bad counsel. And Ahithophel is so sad, he goes home, sets his house in order and hangs himself. Y'all remember that story? We're, we're into obscure Bible stories today. It's in, uh, I believe, Second Samuel. Like a- a yeah, he says, he, that's, out, what, that's what the second, counselor, the second counselor goes. He's not even with the men. He's hiding somewhere in a pit. You won't even find him, and a couple of your guys will die, and people will start running back going, there's a slaughter amongst the followers of Absalom, run, run. And he's, he, he just he works them, and the other guy is so sad he hangs himself. But he was a counselor, not a prophet. So there is a difference. The Bible notices a difference, but there's also a similarity because the Bible notices that his counsel is so good it's like that of a prophet. All I can tell you is that a prophet is is touching on... when, When they ask a question, they're touching on information outside of what human experience can give you. They are finding divine revelation into everyday...
1: You go back to one word. one? Three words. Man of God. Yeah. A prophet can only be a prophet by being appointed by God. And they're speaking on God's behalf in what they are saying, not in their own right. And, and that's what a prophet is doing. He's prophesying God's word so that we, man can know what God wants them to do under the circumstances.
0: And the sons of the prophets, these groups of people who used to roam ancient Israel worshiping and bringing people into fellowship with God in a different way, like I said, we don't know much about them because they're just kind of mentioned off and on throughout the Old Testament, but they lived some different type of life than normal people i don't know if they were in just a big wandering group or if they lived almost like in a monastery type situation but when people talk about them they knew stuff and connected with god in a way that your average israelite did not they were appointed to a special office much like a priest and so like Charles said, they were a man of God. They represented his interest and had access to some of his power to do what needed to be done, or if you ask them to help you. And so there's some overlap, and some prophets were just counselors who had a prophetic ministry. Some had you know some were of probably less earthly good and more spiritual good than others. Um, but that's, that's a fair question. I think there was some overlap, and the Bible still sees a distinction.
2: Well, historically, are some people prophets after the fact because they got it right?
0: I don't think Not that... Not
2: these big ones. I'm talking about <coughs> the middle ones. I, I don't think that... Uh, like military advisors. Right. You know, we, we got advisors right now advising the military what's going to happen. in And some of them would be right. And someone will be right, yeah. right? And was, well, man, they're, they're wise. They must have tapped into source. But Well, the
0: way the Bible presents the prophets, the writing prophets, is thus saith the Lord. It's not thus prophesied Isaiah correctly, whereas, I'm just making up a name because there wasn't Baruch. Baruch got it wrong, and Isaiah got it right, so we got his book and Baruch's got buried. I don't think that's what happened. Um, and I don't think that's what Scripture gives us. There were false prophets but most false prophets in scripture it's not that they read the bones wrong or something they were they were not like the ones we'll talk about in uh the two pro- uh, the prophets in 2nd Kings they they did not prophesy for God they were prophesying for other gods the prophets of Baal were slaughtered for right. one day and and it wasn't that they got it wrong and the other prophets got it right they were prophesying for a di- they were covenant mediators for different organizations outside of God's domain. And so the reason they were wrong is that those domains got beaten. Um,
2: There's a difference between uh, making an educated guess and prediction about what's going to happen and, uh, as he was saying, being a man of God that's giving me thus says the Lord with the definitive Here's what God says is going to happen, and I think that's a little bit the difference that a lot of these advisors are kind well, of looking just, over things, making. any me the word increases. prophet you can use it in a broad sense of anybody that says they can foretell the future or <coughs> prophesize, but that doesn't mean they're going to get it right, and that doesn't mean they're they're tapped into anything special. They're just prophesizing the future. So nice. To me, when we study these prophets in the Bible, I'm studying them aside as capital. Prophets plugged into God and God's. I couldn't have taught Ezekiel without. If any of you taught that series we just came out of, them, we're now Daniel, without having a feeling that I'm not talking about Ezekiel telling these people what to do. I'm talking about God telling these people what to do through Ezekiel, right? Whether he liked it or not, yeah, he was going to. Because sometimes he didn't like it, exactly. And if he hadn't have been God-driven, uh, I don't, he wouldn't rise to the, to
0: the top of these, the list of, right. of these prophets. Now, w- one thing you made me think of when you talked <clears> about <throat> just good advice, there is a biblical genre of good advice that usually wins and has survived the test of time, and that's wisdom literature. Uh, Proverbs is filled with them. Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, um, that that wisdom literature is stuff which is good advice that has risen to the top. It is uh, godly living under the covenant, but it's you know the the Bible never tells you how much to invest in your business. But the Book of Proverbs says, hey, if you do this, it's generally more likely to work out than if you do this. You know, build your barns first, then your castle, you know, your house. Um, and so there there is a place in Scripture for wise advice and good advisors and a and a sharp accountant, but Prophets aren't the same. Um, You know, in many many ways, uh, I don't know that this is is true, but the prophets generally seem like creative type people. You know, you talk about creative type people. The prophets do. Um, There are some that don't. Like Amos, we're going to read about him later. Amos was a... uh, a manager of an estate that had sycamore trees and stuff. Um, he was a tender of sycamore trees. I ran a big farm probably. So Amos probably had some background in business, but for some reason, and I don't know, like I said, I'm, I'm reading this. I think some of the prophets were your creative type people who couldn't balance their checkbook, but could, but could just connect with what God was doing in a situation because of his call on their life. they, They were so far over in that realm of thinking. Um, That's why I feel like there's prophetic literature and there's wisdom literature in the Bible because there are people in our church, and I'm not not calling them prophets because I think what we call a prophet today is not this, but they are more in tune with that type of living, whereas I I feel more comfortable with wisdom literature. That's just me. Um, I can understand wisdom literature. Uh, Prophets are tough. Prophets are hard to read. Um, You mentioned Ezekiel a minute ago, uh, Jeff, but if you read Ezekiel, there are times you just get borderline disturbed reading him. And, And you think, like, that would be terrifying to live that way. But he couldn't live any other way. His office from God, his call on his life, and the commandment of God to him sent him to do those things um isaiah uh is a little different than him isaiah you know was actually in an administration of three or four different kings i think it's four different kings and was pretty well connected he was probably an aristocrat and a well-to-do figure but his prophetic ministry was much more political than dealing with people walking down the street See, so the prophets are all different. Some of them are easier to read than others. My favorite, I've told you before, is Amos, partly because I've studied it, but also just this beautiful poetry. Then you read Jonah, which Jonah's an interesting prophet. You read Jonah and you, you just think like, Jonah's one of the most obtuse, difficult people to work with. He's more concerned about a vine that's wilting than a city full of people. But God had calls on each of their lives and they, they lived out those calls through their personality in different ways. Any more questions? I had some good questions. I want some more good questions. Come on. We're not done yet. We got five more minutes. What kind of basic, where would you put John the Baptist? I always looked at him as a. Yeah, so that's a really good question, and it's one that uh, as I was preparing this, I thought of. John the Baptist uh, is often considered the last prophet. Even by Jewish non-Christian authors of the time and after. There were communities of followers of John the Baptist all throughout the Mediterranean, as you know from the book of Acts, but even surviving two or 300 years after his life, there were some communities that looked back to him. He was considered uh, the last prophet. And if you remember, he had a message, and it was for God's people to re-become God's people. That's why he was baptizing them. It was almost like, go... Go through the Jordan one more time because the last time it didn't stick. Yep. That was kind of what the baptism was. He was doing exactly this. He was calling God's people back into the covenant saying you've broken it and the axe is at the root of the tree. And what happens 35 years after you prophesies? The nation's destroyed by the Romans and the temple's destroyed. But you've got to think of another warning he had for the people they would come up and say, well, we're we're God's people. We're Abraham's sons. He said, don't say that you have Abraham as your father because God's able to raise up from these rocks children for Abraham. You bear fruit worthy of repentance. So he was calling God's people back to true covenant membership. And, and many people heard him and because of that followed Jesus. So he was a very successful prophet. Um, but he was a prophet. And should probably be on this list, but I was focused on, look, the Old Testament, you know. And... uh You've also got Philip and his, I think his daughters and, and Agabus and several other prophets in the New Testament. But when we get in the New Testament, <clears throat> we're dealing with a little, little bit different of a bird than the Old Testament covenant mediator. And so, like I said, there are dots outside the circle, and I'm giving you kind of like a big picture. The, the details, the little edges that fall outside the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, those are always the best parts but um, you know very good question who is, who is the greatest saint ever born of woman, not in the kingdom of God according to Jesus Right, John the Baptist, who was
1: an Elijah. When God God takes you specifically and takes you to heaven and doesn't let you die, you know who's number
0: one. So, people ask the question about the link between Elijah and John the Baptist, and I think when we go over Elijah, I'll deal with that, um, even though it brings in the New Testament.